The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Quince Labodian. We spoke about neoliberalism as a project of institutional design, the significance of the Habsburg Empire to the neoliberal concept of double government that came to be instantiated in such institutions as the WTO and the IMF. And we also talked about the European Union and the possibility of reforming the EU in a progressive direction. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, which has a great many left-wing titles that might be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is The Authoritarian Personality by Theodore Adorno, Elsa Frankel-Brunswick, Daniel J. Levinson and R. Nevitt Sanford. The Authoritarian Personality is not only one of the most significant works of social psychology ever written, it also marks a milestone in the development of Theodore Adorno's thought showing him grappling with the problem of fascism and the reason for Europe's turn to reaction. Visit versobooks.com for more information about the book. You can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, SoundCloud, Blueberry and Spotify. And you can also follow the show on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at PolTheoryOther. If you've been enjoying the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. It really helps to bring in new listeners to the show. And if you would like to, you can also support the show by donating through Patreon. You can become a supporter for $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes, including today's interview. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Quince Labodian is Associate Professor of History at Wellesley College. He's a historian of modern German and international history with a focus on North-South politics, social movements and the intellectual history of neoliberalism. He's the author of Foreign Front, Third World Politics in 60s West Germany, the editor of Comrades of Colour, East Germany in the Cold War World and the co-editor of Nine Lives of Neoliberalism. His most recent book, which was the topic of our conversation, is Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. So my, my first question is, is uh, well, a very simple question, really. It's, it's just sort of how would you want to, to define neoliberalism and what do you find unsatisfactory about the way the term is typically defined? Well, I think that the way that it is often defined is kind of just as a synonym for capitalism. It just becomes a way to describe um, a kind of comprehensive social system in which we have to see ourselves as commodities that need to be kind of maximized in their in their value and in their utility and kind of exchanged in chunks with other people for pieces of money or or for in barter form for other things um and i don't really feel like we need a new word for capitalism i feel like capitalism is a good one that's a good term we should keep working with it and in fact many of the things that people 
describe as neoliberalism, sort of, you know, the monetization of every aspect of life, every minute of the day, every every bit of intimate intimate life and and sort of waking life all the way into sleeping life. I mean, these are things that people have really been talking about for over 100 years, 150 years. This problem of kind of industrialized existence or, you know, living at the business end of, of uh, colonial-style occupation. Um, these are old problems. These are modern problems. So in that sense, I'm good with capitalism as the umbrella term for the system that we live on this planet and have for some time now. Neoliberalism, though, I find to be helpful nevertheless, is one philosophy about how capitalism should be organized, among others. So I see neoliberalism as a quite distinct sort of proposal for how to arrange social relations under capitalism. I see it in competition with uh, competing ideas like social democracy and fascism and communism. I think these are all competing ways of organizing capitalism in the 20th century or abolishing capitalism in some cases. And they've all sort of arisen in competition with each other. So neoliberalism arose as an explicitly anti-communist, anti-socialist, and anti-fascist ideology. And you can't sort of understand it without realizing the context of its comparison. So Starting already in the 1930s, which is where I tend to sort of date it along with many other intellectual historians, I think you can see the attempt to articulate neoliberalism as a kind of model of rule, a model of organizing capitalism. And those conversations have gone on for, you know, almost a century now. So it seems to me helpful to have a way to describe this relatively discrete political ideology that has existed for quite some time now and has undergone many mutations and permutations in that time. And and so f- for you, it's less about the question of subjectivity under capitalism, but more a question of institutional design. Yeah. I mean, in a very kind of a slightly old-fashioned and boring way, I'd like to think of it as an ideology, um, one that, that actually, in this case, does have its sort of its premier authors and its premier texts and has emerged as a kind of school of thought. Um, The question then of what kind of subjectivity that produces is I think a very important question, but I don't personally find it that helpful to sort of talk about, let's say, neoliberal subjectivity as an object of study. I, for myself, I find it easier to think about neoliberalism in this kind of nitpickily constrained way as a kind of an evolving set of discussions over the decades between a relatively discrete group of people. And I completely um, accept that other people use it different ways. Some people use it as a way of periodizing sort of global history since the 1970s. Other people talk about it as a way of interacting with oneself and others. They use neoliberalism that way, and I'm not in the business of policing other people's usage. But for myself, I find it helpful as a as a way of starting and continuing conversations to keep it in the kind of relatively discrete realm of a kind of school of thought. Would you see that equation of neoliberalism with capitalism representing a not particularly helpful nostalgia for the early post-war era, perhaps? I think it can definitely manifest that way. I mean, I think that 
You can see that a little bit in in Wendy Brown's book, Undoing the Demos, where you know we sort of see the the unraveling of social order happening, beginning in the 1980s, with the reign of Thatcher and Reagan, and sort of um, you know continuing galloping fashion since then, which which leads to a kind of rosy picture of the period beforehand, right? As if mm. somehow life was was just that much better in the 1960s and 1950s, and I think that that's it's unfortunately hard to get away from one's own biography. And I think that we tend to see, or a lot of people tend to see the era of their own childhoods and adolescences as a kind of a rosier period of history. I think that's probably not going to be true for people coming of age since 2008 for the most part. But I think that um, that doubling the term, you know, calling capitalism neoliberalism and vice versa also obscure something very important, which I think is that neoliberalism, as I understand it, is not, although it is a kind of, you know, a discrete set of ideas over time, I think it's not so much a set of prescriptions and kind of dogmas and sort of Ten Commandments etched in stone on the peak of Mount Pelerin, but really um, a set of responses to a single question. And the question remains the same but the answers don't always remain the same. And the question is, what does capitalism require to survive under conditions of mass democracy? And based on the, the fact that it has its own sort of inherent capacity to self-destruct. And that question produces different answers over time. And I think it in that sense, to, to talk about neoliberalism as, as being a question about capitalism is a helpful way of kind of keeping those things separate. And it also helps us see, I think, the way that neoliberalism as a political school of thought actually arose coterminously with with things like Keynesianism and mid-century social democracy, because I think that the way that someone like Jeff Mann describes John Maynard Keynes's question is very similar to the way I describe Friedrich Hayek's question, both of them are asking the same question, which is, you know, what does capitalism need to survive given Mm. the present conjuncture? And they had different answers to that question. But the question itself was, I think, the same. So, I mean, in terms of of the solution to that question, in the book, you you begin with discussion about the the Austro-Hungarian Empire and how this was a a huge inspiration to European neoliberals and, and their efforts to reorder the world economy and you know obviously it's it's very striking to think that an empire that was you know viewed at the time as a, as an anachronism would serve as the inspiration for the global economy today so could you explain what it was about the empire that was so attractive to to these neoliberal thinkers sure i mean there it's definitely a case of needing to distinguish between kind of their opinion when it still existed and then the kind of rose tinted spectacles that they saw it in retrospect and other sort of historians of the Habsburg period are also really familiar with the way that that the Habsburg Empire kind of looked best in the rearview mirror um, from the point of view of not just Viennese and Austrians, but also some liberals from the provinces and even nationalists from the various um, successor states. So what I do in the book is, is I take some of these observations that Hayek and Mises made about the empire after it was gone and sort of try to tease those out to show how they were seeing the empire as a kind of scale model of the world in miniature. Um, Again, something that 
other historians have noted people like Karl Popper doing or um, Hirsch Lauterpacht and other sort of doyens of liberalism and international law, mm-hmm. they also sort of saw the way that supposedly the the Habsburg Empire had provided this sort of model of of liberal world society in miniature. In the case of Hayek and Mises, what they admired in it was the way that it practiced what Hayek later called double government. And what he meant by that was that there was a space that was governed separately by a set of kind of political institutions and norms and economic institutions and norms. So within the Habsburg Empire, you had at the same time many different nationalities and people speaking different languages in the Habsburg Empire, linguistic group and nationality and often race were kind of considered synonymous. So you had people who had this sense of somehow self-determination or some some form of representation for their own community. They got money from the central state to start language schools. They were able to, you know, form their own kind of voluntary associations. So there was there was a true kind of multinational quality to the Habsburg Empire. But at the same time, it was a single free trade zone, right? I mean, it was, mm. it was a single unitary space. You had one currency. There were no barriers to trade within it. So people who were both having this sense of fulfillment or representation somehow politically and ethnically, if you like, and at the same time, they, they saw themselves as part of this kind of cosmopolitan economic community. And nobody at the time thought to say, we, the Czechs, want not only our own national school, but we also want this territory to be a space within which only, let's say, Czech-made products can be bought or sold, right? Mm. So that kind of Swadeshi-style economic nationalism that one would find at the same time in parts of the British Empire, for example, you were not seeing in the Habsburg Empire in any significant way. So looking back at that, they're like, wow, that was kind of a miracle. How did how did that work? Because it's proven very hard to reconstruct after the First World War when Czech, Czechoslovaks now want to have their own industry and they want land that's owned by foreigners to be owned by Czechoslovaks and the Hungarians want their own industry and they want their own currency, dot, dot, dot. And now suddenly, as, as they put it, people are mistaking sovereignty for ownership. So they're confusing these two worlds hmm. of politics and economics when these two worlds must be for the sake of the stability of the world system, kept separate. So the, the term that, that I pick up from them, which they themselves picked up from Carl Schmitt, is to talk about this sort of division between the world of dominium and imperium. And these are terms from Latin, Roman law originally, and then picked up in international law. And what they mean is that dominium is kind of a space of property and things, And imperium is a space of states and people. And the world then is sort of composed both of a kind of world of property where there's things that are owned all over the world and a kind of uh, checkerboard of territorial sovereign states. And for them, the secret is how can you do that double government that they at some level saw succeeding in the Habsburg Empire at the global level? How can you make people satisfied that they have enough political representation through whatever kind of means that requires without then infringing on the right of property to be owned by anyone anywhere and the right of money to move 
in and out of countries when and how it wants to. These were norms that they thought, looking backwards, had been relatively sacrosanct and respected in the kind of Victorian era of so-called first age of globalization, late 19th century up to 1914, but that after the First World War were kind of norms that were constantly being attacked and seemed to be kind of eroding more and more. New countries emerged and they said, hey, there's a, prop- there's a piece of property here, there's a, there's a factory here, there's a mine here, or a piece of our coastline that's owned by this distant investor somewhere in Europe you know, backed by the Lloyds of London or with the, you know, with the backing of some some set of investors in, in, a, in a distant country. Why should that belong to them? I mean, that's, it's our country. We have independence now. That should be ours. And so this claim of sovereignty over um, natural resources and over territory as something that is, goes hand in hand with political independence and political self-determination becomes kind of the signature threat to the neoliberal version of order in the 20th century, and I mean, arguably, up into the present. The failure to kind of reestablish the Habsburg model at the global level becomes the thing that kind of haunts the neoliberals throughout the 20th century. And I mean, regarding the nation state, is is the the, the granting of of cultural rights to to, to nations and the sort of various um, accoutrements of, of nationhood, is that something for the neoliberals you just have to kind of accept and tolerate, or is it more than that that actually the nation uh, at some level may be dangerous but also necessary? Yeah, I mean, if people had different opinions, I mean, there were definitely outright kind of imperial revanchists who believed that the nation state was a kind of aberration and and, and, um, and empires needed to be kind of reconstituted or if you're still in the 50s and 60s, they needed to be defended from vanishing. But that was a kind of minority position among the neoliberals. I would say that in general, there was a kind of acceptance that the world had changed in such a way that, that the nation state was simply um, the horizon of politics now. And that, of course was conjoined with the fact that the principle of one person, one vote democracy was now the horizon of political aspirations. So in that sense, it wasn't entirely a kind of blue sky thinking that they were engaged in. They were looking at what they saw as a set of pragmatic constraints that exist now in the world. People want to be nationally represented and they want to be represented by means of one person, one vote democratic suffrage. And given that fact, you know, what institutions can be built or designed to nevertheless keep the kind of engine of the world economy, you know, functioning and on its tracks. So for the most part in this period I'm looking at, 1930s to the 1980s is kind of what the book covers really, even though it ends with the World Trade Organization being created in the mid-1990s, that period, you don't see a lot of a principled defenses of the nation on its own terms from the people I'm looking at. I mean, they are, mm. in that sense, kind of, especially Hayek and Mises, they're kind of good cosmopolitans in that sense, that they don't actually value nations in like the blood and soil sense at all. In fact, they see that as not just a... Um, a kind of a gateway to collectivism of the fascist kind, but also collectivism of the socialist or social democratic variety. I begin 
one of the chapters with this epigraph from, from Lionel Robbins, who was very close to Hayek and Mises in the 20s and 30s, uh, which reads, um, the, the mines for the miners is the same as saying papau for the papauans, right? So this idea that workers work in a place, therefore they should own it, is the same wrong logic as people in a place like Papua New Guinea saying, this is our country, therefore we should we should own it. Um, so that that sense of that that sort of autochthonous national sense, like people are rooted in place, was a potential kind of, you know, a kind of wrench in the gears of of the international division of labor. And and for for Mises especially, who was who spoke more than many of the others about the freedom of movement, um, the idea that people would be attached to this or that patch of land was actually a problem too, because labor needed to go where it was needed. Um, hmm. The the worker did need to be able to you know pick up pull up stakes and and move on to the place where the the job required them to and if they had a sense of like no but this part of the world is where I must be then that could also be a problem for capitalism right so the the fluidity of nations especially in Mises and who is in a way the most consequent of the I think um, cosmopolitans in that group was what required a kind of a lack of connection to territory. I mean, going back to to the Habsburg Empire serving as an inspiration, and this this notion of of double government. If the contemporary scaled up versions of of, of, of the Habsburg Empire are things like the WTO, uh, the EU, which maybe we'll talk about separately, and and the IMF, how um, how closely do you think those conform to the neoliberal idea that they were sketching out? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's the EU example is sort of hard to avoid because I think it, I mean, right off the bat, because it does come closest to anyway some of the things that that Mises had proposed for something that was called the Eastern Democratic Union or the EDU hmm. that he wrote about in the 1940s, where he basically said, I don't have much hope anymore for a kind of world economy that's going to be completely open. You know, the the Soviet Union now exists. It's uh, they're not really recuperable right now. Um, the the sort of social democrats seem to have taken over by the by the late 1940s in in the UK and and the United States. But what if we could constitute the Habsburg Empire again? Right. He so he makes this and and, and expand it even. So he makes this proposal for something that stretches from like Trieste to the Baltics, and and he has a very vivid way of describing it that I reproduce in the book where he says you know. Every country will still have their national anthem. They'll still have their flag. They'll still have their national costumes. Um, but these will actually mean nothing because the the control of money will be centralized. Um, the right of free trade and free movement of labor will be absolute. And therefore, you know, all the relevant decisions will be made in the world of economics and politics will just be this kind of froth and this sort of frilly uh, distraction that kind of keeps people um, you know, distracted in a way, or like superficially keeps them um, happy. And I mean, when you think about the EU in the 1990s and up to, and into the 2000s, then you have to say, you know, there is a way that 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 vision, at least superficially, has come true. So then the question is obviously begged. You know, does that mean that the EU of the 1990s, post Maastricht, is a kind of is a kind of neoliberal vision 
a kind of like Fata Morgana like born uh, out of the dreams of Mises and Hayek in the 1940s. And and I don't think it I don't think it is or was. And partially that has to do with with the question of freedom of movement. So the the idea that you should be able to cross borders was central actually to Ludwig von Mises's way of thinking about how capitalism could be reorganized, but it wasn't central to the way of thinking for most of the neoliberals I describe in my hmm. book. So from the 1930s onward, it becomes a kind of um, a kind of truism that you can have all the benefits of economic globalization without having freedom of movement. So as long as you have, and Haberler, Gottfried Haberler, who was a protege of Mises and a, and a friend and um, colleague of, of Hayek's, be, is the first to kind of formalize this within international trade economics in the 1930s in something called the theory of comparative costs. And what he argues and, and demonstrates is that as long as you have you know, absolute free movement of money and goods, then that will enough that will be enough to kind of um, allow you to reap the benefits of the international division of labor. You don't actually need people and labor to cross borders. So the vision that that most of them cultivated um, up into the 1990s is not one that plays centrally the vision of, of freedom of movement. And I think that's actually really significant because I think that the freedom of movement that people do enjoy Within under well within the European Union, um, does allow for kind of recombinations of 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 political uh, projects that can often run quite contrary to the vision of kind of the free trade purism and kind of minimal state um, anti welfare state ideology that that Hayek and Mises were striving for. So there is no reason why. People can't take that framework of multinationality, single economic policy, and then use it for forms of economic organization that are not of the kind that Hayek and Mises envisioned. So the idea that that many neoliberals who are opposed to the EU now uh, talk about all the time is the fear that the EU will become a transfer union, right? That it will be a kind of federalism that makes up for the fact that some parts of it are, you know, requiring more funds and you know, structural funds of the kinds that do exist so that there will be a kind of um, evenness or egalitarian kind of a spirit behind the governance of the EU. That's was in, partially achieved, obviously, in some in some ways. And there's no reason sort of per se that that couldn't continue or 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 be reinvented in a kind of a new version of the European Union. What the what Hayek and Mises and all the other neoliberals I describe really put a lot of stake in is the kind of binding quality of constitutional law. Hmm. They believe they believe that, you know, all you need to do in the end is create the right constitution and then the hands of the sovereigns will be bound permanently and the decisions that are relevant within the community will be made by private actors and the place where they'll be making it will be in the space of the market. And therefore, you know, the threat of socialism will have been kind of locked up and put into chains kind of permanently by disempowering the the lawmakers and the and the executive. And that's just not how it works. I mean, that's, that's not a good description of reality. Um, it turns out that even under constitutional constraints, a lot of different things 
can happen. And people have shown that, for example, with the example of the IMF. There's a recent piece of work by the sociologist Sarah Babb and Alexander Kentekenelis, which shows that the IMF had an Articles of Agreement in 1944 that basically, you know, tied it to a kind of a Keynesian model of managed globalization and capital controls and um, allowing for kind of welfare-style spending and expansionary spending, at least theoretically, within the member states. And flash forward to the 1980s and 90s of like full-blown structural adjustment and kind of race to the bottom style deregulation and privatization mm. and selling off of the state. The articles of agreement hadn't changed. They had never been changed or revised. They're the same. So the constitution, quote unquote, of the IMF has been the same from the era of Keynesianism to the era of kind of hyper-privatization and um, austerity ideology. So, I mean, what that shows is that law is actually only a kind of a weak constraint in the end on politics. And politics responds to the demands and pressures of mobilized populations, both through elections and through other forms of pressure. And the the kind of crystalline pure vision that someone like Hayek and Mises, you know, cultivated of like let's just get the law right and then and then people will be fulfilled forever after within the space of um, the market is been proven to be wrong again and again, right? So. Mm. So in a way that was is the kind of the intention of of my book is to is to show you know how very seriously they took this task over the decades of coming up with the kind of perfect institutional architecture the kind of perfect fix for the problem of demands for social justice and and the expression of democratic self-rule and how that fix breaks down again and again it's the goal of my book was not to show the kind of inevitability of neoliberal domination. It was supposed to show the kind of fragility and the kind of the constantly contested nature of neoliberal schemes for economic governance. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure Wolfgang Strait got the message uh, there, perhaps. Um, so um, w- w- would that therefore be... Be why you see this kind of ambivalence um, amongst neoliberals, uh, not just regarding the EU, but other uh, supranational institutions, because there is always this kind of um, alternative potentiality within those institutions. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the EU is is it's such a, a perfect example that it's hard not to use it again. So in the 1980s, uh, most of the kind of organized neoliberals were, you know, quite enthusiastic about the possibilities of European integration as long as it involved, you know, kind of hard constitutional constraints on especially things like state spending, right? So mm-hmm. the kind of the 3% rule um, on on state deficits was, was of sort of cardinal importance, right? I mean, this is kind of the most important part about the EU as it was, as it was formalized in the 90s from the neoliberal point of view. What they discovered almost immediately is that that was not a hard constraint. Germany and France themselves immediately start exceeding yeah. it, right? So that's already, it's like, oh, wait a sec. Um, maybe we've actually just reproduced a kind of supranational bureaucracy at a higher level that will just be seized by socialists or run rampant over by national, um, you know, rebellious bad actors, whatever. That 
nonetheless still left some people cautiously hopeful about the fact that at least having some kind of a um, a, a binding structure of enforcement would would be better than having no structure. Where it really runs off the rails for some of the for some of the right wing neoliberals that I've been looking at is with the response to the the 2008 financial crisis and then the decision to bail out southern european countries and 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 greece in particular right even though anyone who knows this even superficially knows that it was really a bail in of private financial actors mm. <laughs> from germany above germany all, yeah that this was not actually a story of kind of greek profligacy or whatever Mm. As all of the sort of the stereotypes of the right wing tabloid would would put it, but in a way that was immaterial to the kind of um, opposition that these neoliberals then had to the decision made by Merkel in particular to um, bail out quote unquote Southern European countries, of course, with incredibly punitive conditions attached. But it was that it was the very act of um, of exceeding the kind of mandate written into the laws of the ECB that infuriated them or then mm. made them because if you if you do this who knows what else could could be coming exactly. down the line exactly so you, if you're going to do you know and especially you're going to do like qe of that of that volume to bring things down to zero interest rates then clearly the idea of a kind of responsible hand on the on the rudder and one that's going to follow any kind of um ideology that matches sort of state spending to state capacity or whatever is is just a fiction and yeah exactly so if if the if the BOE will do this kind of the Bank of England or the ECB will do this kind of monetary action to save the banks then what if socialists get into power are they just going to do that to pay for the green new deal right i mean these are actually i think pretty good concerns for neoliberals to have i think that i think that they should be worried. <laughs> I mean, I really do. I think that mm. especially, I mean, I, I can't speak for the ECB, but, you know, there is a lot of creative thinking happening around central banking. And there is a way in which they are, especially the Bank of England, interested in being responsive to democratic mandates and pressures and rethinking what the role of a central bank is. So, you know, it may be a kind of a wake-up call here for neoliberals that that they should be having, which is that, this this uh, search for like an impersonal guardian of the economy who will somehow stand outside of society and, you know, simply enforce, um, you know, unpleasant but necessary reforms, um, that might be a kind of elusive, that might be a kind of elusive figure for them to pursue because it's not clear that that you can never actually put something outside of society like that. Hence... Hence, the rebirth of interest in things like the gold standard, um, the interest in sort of anonymized currency systems like mm. Bitcoin, Ethereum, and others, right? These still are, are, are actually more interesting for neoliberals since 2008 because it shows that maybe you have to turn to um, these sort of impersonal automated systems to actually have that kind of... that. Um, the kind of bloodless rule of the market in a way which otherwise seems to be hard to secure through these all too human institutions of things like the Fed in the BOE. Well, I mean, you, you talk in the book about the problem of, of, of visibility, that, that ideally these institutions, if they're to, to, to work well to neoliberal ends, ought to be not invisible, but, but of low visibility and, and inno, you know, innocuous seeming. Mm -hmm. um, and that clearly doesn't characterize the, the European Union, for instance. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. I mean, that's 
that's really the conclusion that that some of the sort of organized neoliberals themselves came to in the 90s after the kind of the you know the public assault really on the WTO as an institution that began in Seattle in 99 but then you know you started to have this kind of traveling roadshow of of um, protesters showing up wherever the people like the WTO were meeting um, they they realized that they'd actually kind of made a mistake and actually Martin Wolf was one of the people who was quite reflective about this quite early on where he said you know we realized that in fact this sort of backdoor or sort of you know, behind the scenes horse trading that was going on at the GATT, which always seemed so unpleasant because it wasn't governed by kind of, you know, rule of law or kind of enforceability or a kind of a universal standard. It always seemed like it was just open to negotiation. Some people were getting sweetheart deals and the developing countries were always seemed to be getting off light and so on. That maybe that is how <laughs> the world economy had to be governed. But the mm. moment that we had to do something highly visible like this to create like one rule for the world economy and then have like these large ministerial meetings where everyone from all the, mem- the over 130 member countries all gather in like one convention center, we've just done the very thing that Hayek said we shouldn't do, which is we've given a face to the market, mm. right? And even though, you know, I think in the defense of people, some of the people who are interested in international economic law, right? It's not all kind of supervillains or something. Um, a lot of the people who are involved in that are genuinely interested in things like problems of equality, problems of representation, problems of north-south redistribution. But they have come to stand in then for the impersonal forces of the market in a way which both fairly and unfairly just makes them a target. And and that's, of course, true for the EU too, right? I mean, I a few years ago with the Blockupy movement that was, you know, calling stridently for financial transaction taxes and 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 pushing really hard on um, the way that the EU should be more responsible and kind of reining in finance after the crisis. I remember the, these protesters like stormed the European Central Bank, right? You remember this and threw mm. glitter at threw glitter at the people in the meeting and kind of had a big happening there. And of course, it was just this sort of momentary spectacle, but it always struck me at the time that, you know, they had a building to storm. And and meanwhile, if you're if you're if you're serious about the the idea of competing currencies and private currencies of a kind that have no real fixed address and do kind of exist like you know, in a kind of extra state space of of um, online um, auctioning and trading, then there is no more kind of face. There's no sort of regulatory face. There's no fixed address. There's no building to storm, and that, in a way, is is even is even more frightening. I think. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.